So let's talk about what we're talking about today. If I didn't get a chance to meet you yet, my name is Rachel Wortman. My husband and I are the pastors here, and we are in the middle of a series called, you guys remember? It's one word. We got this. Anybody? No, close. The safe answer. I mean, it is a series about Jesus, but no, we're in the, <laughs> sorry, Lord. Uh, it is a series called People. People, yes, now you remember. We're in the middle of this series called People, and here's what People is all about. We are learning what it looks like to bring heaven's ways in the context of our relationships, right? So two weeks ago, we preached a message I shared with you guys about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's a, a theory that came in the 50s, a psychological theory, that says we all have these basic needs, and they work like a ladder system. So when the bottom ones get met, a new need emerges. That's how we're designed. And I, I think there's a lot about this that's true. And so the base needs are your physical safety, being able to eat, uh, drink water, and rest, right? the things that you have to do to be able to stay alive. And then once those needs are met, what emerges in us is a need to have community. It's called belonging, a, a need for love and, and community and support. And so we talked a couple weeks ago about how important it is for us to recognize if we have a good support system or not. And if we don't, that we take steps to get that because the truth is, until that need of belonging is met, you won't feel a need to fulfill your purpose. The end goal of Maslow's hierarchy of needs is what we're turned, it's called self-actualization, but for our purposes in the church, we're calling it fulfilling your purpose. It's sort of the same thing, just different terminology. And so for us to fulfill our purpose, then we need to have our basic needs be met. We also need to have our sense, a sense of community, right? Um, and so that's why we're focusing on that. Then last week we talked all about people and specifically about the culture of honor. You guys remember that? And so I challenged you guys to do something to honor someone in your world over the course of this last week. I hope you guys did that. We talked about how Bill Johnson's definition of honor is not, it's, it's acknowledging who someone is and not stumbling over who they're not, right? That we're not looking at you based on your past track record, we're looking at you based on who God says you are. I shared with you guys that John Ortberg book, I'd like you better if you were more like me. And we talked about how the human natural position is to base our relationships off of how much me do I see in you. But what the kingdom does is the kingdom looks at how much Jesus is in you, and that's how we define our relationships. Amen? So if this is news to you, you can catch that on our podcast from last week. You can find it on Apple, to, uh, Apple or Podbean or any of those places um, under Bethel OKC. And so today we're going to talk about confrontation, okay? So... Attention passengers, the captain has turned on the fasten your seatbelts <laughs> sign or light. Um, it's going to be great, I promise you, okay? But we're going to talk about kingdom confrontation. We're actually going to talk about sin, that dirty word, and uh, how it fits into our new covenant perspective. I think it's, this is really important for us. But before we do that, as I warned you last week, we're taking some time to connect with each other every uh, Sunday over the course of this series probably continuing after that, spoiler alert, but um, we got two questions for you, okay? So here's what I need you to do. Turn to somebody next to you, and I want you to answer these two questions. They're going to be on the screen. The first one is this. On a scale of one to 10, how comfortable are you with confrontation? 10 being, I can do this in my sleep. One being, kill me now, okay? So on a scale of one to 10, how comfortable are you with confrontation? The second question is, what is the hardest part of confrontation for you, Okay? So turn to the person next to you and just share. Scale of one to 10, what's the hardest part? You got about two minutes to do that.
Okay, everybody got a chance to share? So here's what I need. Show of hands, how many of you guys on your number scale are four or lower? Anybody? Couple, okay, good number of us, praise God. Okay, that's great. How many of you are eight or higher? Anybody? Wow, amazing. That's amazing. Uh, so we'll all pray for each other uh, by the end. So listen, okay. So we're talking about kingdom confrontation, but before we even talk about the practicals of what it looks like to confront someone in the kingdom, we need to talk about sin, amen? We need to talk about failure. We need to talk about what this looks like to God because I don't know if you're aware of this yet, but no one is perfect. I know, it's okay. We've got defibrillator paddles, we'll bring you back to life. Uh, if I just ruined your life by telling you that. But that's the truth. Nobody is perfect. So we have to learn what to do with sin. Danny Silk puts it this way. If you don't know what to do with sin, you can't handle people. It's so true. They're totally connected. So this is why we're dealing with this, why we're looking at this. Um, today we're going to look at the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with these terms. We're actually going to read chapter 8 of Hebrews in just a second. But I want to give sort of a working definition of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant for us as we get started. So let's read chapter uh, 8 of Hebrews. This is from the Passion Translation. It's up on the screen. And then we're going to make, some, um, make this make sense. That was so redundant. Here we go. All right. This is the subject line of Hebrews chapter 8, our better covenant. And I left that on there because I think it's important for us to understand what Jesus did was something better than what we had in the Old Testament. Amen? So here's what he says. Now, the writer says, Now this is the crowning point of what we are saying. We have a magnificent king priest who ministers for us at the right hand of God. He is enthroned with honor next to the priest who ministers for us at the right hand of God. Oh, I said that. Sorry. He is enthroned with honor next to the throne of majesty on high. He serves in the holy sanctuary in the true heavenly tabernacle set up by God and not by men. Since every high priest is offered is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, so the Messiah also had to bring some sacrifice. But since he didn't qualify to be an earthly priest, and there are already priests who offer sacrifices prescribed by the law, he offered in heaven a perfect sacrifice. Verse 5, the priests on earth serve in the temple that is but a copy modeled after the heavenly sanctuary, the shadow of reality. Now, I'm going to pause here for a second. Do you guys remember last week I was talking to you about how the heavens were created and then we were challenged by God, we're called by God to see the pattern in heaven and created on the earth? This is one of the scriptures that points to that. He says, for when Moses began to construct the tabernacle, God warned him and said, you must precisely follow the pattern I revealed to you on Mount Sinai. But now Jesus the Messiah has accepted a priestly ministry which far surpasses theirs since he is the catalyst of a better covenant which contains far more wonderful promises. Amen. For if that first covenant had been faultless, no one would have needed a second one to replace it. What does this mean? This means that from the beginning when God gave the old covenant to Moses, he knew it was temporary. It was never designed to be the covenant we all use forever, okay? Verse eight, but God revealed the defect and limitation of the first when he said to his people, look, the day will come, declares the Lord, when I will satisfy the people of Israel and Judah by giving them a new covenant. What's happening in this passage of scripture is actually a direct quote from Jeremiah 31 verses 30 through 33 about where God was prophesying to the people at the time, there will come a new covenant. And now the writer of Hebrews is pulling that prophecy and saying that time is now. 
Uh, it says, verse 9, this is so important for us to catch. It will be an entirely different covenant. Everybody say different. It will be an entirely different covenant than the ones I made with their fathers when I led them by hand out of Egypt. For they did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I rejected him, says the Lord. For here is the covenant I will one day establish with the people of Israel. Now this is so good. I will embed my laws within their thoughts and fasten them onto their hearts. I will be their loyal God and they will be my loyal people. Now, I don't know if you're catching this already, but we've talked the last couple of weeks about Luke chapter six and how Jesus was saying, what we store up in our hearts becomes the overflow of our life, amen? And so here God is saying, I actually have embedded my laws within you. So we have an upper hand to actually bear fruit for the Lord. Verse 11, and the result will be, uh, let's see, and the result of this will be that everyone will know me as the Lord. There will be no need at all to teach their fellow citizens or brothers by saying, you should know the Lord Jehovah since everyone will know me inwardly from the most unlikely to the most distinguished. For I will demonstrate my mercy to them and will forgive their evil deeds. Now this is the other part we gotta pay attention to. And never remember again their sins. This proves that by establishing this new covenant, the first is now obsolete, ready to expire, and about to disappear. Amen. It's good stuff, right? So essentially what we're talking about here is when God met with Moses on the, on the Mount Sinai and he gave him the Ten Commandments, he created the Old Covenant. That's what we define as the Old Covenant. And then when Jesus comes, he created the New Covenant. So the working definition is the Old Covenant is what's related to the laws that we see with the Ten Commandments and some other ones that came out after. And then the New Covenant is about salvation being what leads us. So I want to break this down as clearly as I can. A lot of us are under the impression that what we have in the new covenant is like the 2.0 of the old covenant. Almost like, you know, you have your phone and it, the system got upgraded and it's pretty much the same with a couple of boosted things, right? So we have the old covenant here. Okay, this is what we're going to use to define the old covenant. It's a square if you can't see. Let me see if I can get this here. This is the old covenant. I really want to make sure we, guys, we catch this. Under the new covenant, oh my gosh, that's an M. Under the new covenant... This is what it looks like. They're not the same. The only similarity is the fact that they're both shapes. So this is a great example of how Jesus does this. We're gonna talk about this verse and then we'll pick it up in a second. And I don't have it on the screen, but Matthew chapter 5, 27 and 28. You guys are probably familiar. Jesus is talking and he says this. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Old covenant. He says, but I am telling you, if you look lustfully at somebody else, you've committed adultery in your heart. Very similar statements in terms of the action, completely different process. You guys tracking with me? So in the old covenant, everything is external. Everything is about what you actually do outside of you. And honestly, the way you interact with God in the old covenant is external as well. His presence comes on you. He comes in the room. We interact. Everything is outward. In the new covenant, everything is inward. So I shared this with you guys last week, but in the old covenant, it's all about right behaving. In the new covenant, it's about right believing. Now we're not just focused on what we actually did. We're focused on why we did it. What was driving us on the inside? Why? Well, Jesus says in Luke 6, like I already mentioned, what's happening, what we're storing inside of us is the fruit that we produce. So now, because we have the Holy Spirit inside of us, now we get to have an inward understanding because we recognize when we get our thoughts correct, 
the byproduct of that is correct actions, amen? So this, this example of adultery is so beautiful to explain this, where before it was all about just don't do it. I can't really control what's happening on the inside of you, but don't, don't act on that. But now, in our new covenant, it's about what you're thinking about it. Does that make sense? So it's not like we upgraded it. The old covenant didn't become the new by just becoming a bigger uh, square, you know? God saw fit that it had to be something entirely different, as we saw in this chapter. Why? It, think about it like an Apple product to an Android product, and I know you've split the room on whose is the better one. But for the sake of this argument, you can pick whichever one you like. They're not the same. There's a lot of similarity, but they're not exactly the same. So if we're going to operate in how the kingdom tells us to operate in life, in relationships, in finances, everything, we have to understand this right here. Because this is not serving us anymore. It's dead. It's gone. It was only temporary. It was only ever meant to be temporary. Here's a couple other examples. So in the old covenant, it's all about rules. In the new covenant, it's about relationship. How many of you guys have heard that 2,000 times? Let me explain what that means. It's not, you know, we hear those bumper stickers and stuff. It's not about religion. It's about relationship. What we're saying is it's not about your actions anymore. It's about the motivation that led you to act based on your relationship with God. Now it's our relationship with Jesus that fuels us, guides us, leads us. We're not motivated by just fulfilling the commandments, okay? Here's a great way to look at it. In the old covenant, we're motivated by the fear of punishment. I want to do this right because I don't want to be smited. God says in Deuteronomy, I put before you a mountain of blessing, a mountain of curses. I don't want that mountain of curses, Lord. I'm on the straight and narrow. In the new covenant, we're motivated not by fear of punishment. We're motivated by love. Here's the best way I can explain this to you. I'm one of those people who can't handle the sound of someone eating. Anybody like me? Okay, a couple of you. I love you all. Thank you. We are connected forever. Um, I married this amazing man who loves chips. Chips are Grant's love language. And if you know someone like me, chips are like the, the provoker of the dragon lady within, right? I was talking to a friend of mine the other day. We were talking about when it's like you're going about your day and all of a sudden you're like, oh, what's happening to me? That's what chips do to me. It's not good. It's been like that my entire life. And I married this amazing man who loves chips. Chips are his love language. He will eat chips almost every day of his life if he can. And because he loves me, he will not eat chips in about a six-foot range not because he's worried about what I'm going to say. It's because he loves me. He doesn't want me to like, be like, you know? And I was thinking about this. What's the best way I can define for you the difference between motivated by punishment or motivated by love? And it's something like that. Think about it in your own life. When you love someone so much, you're willing to change your behavior because you love them. It has nothing to do with fear. has nothing to do with punishment. It's out of the goodness of your heart. Right? That's what it's like in the New Covenant. If you love to eat chips, God bless you. I'll pray for you. Um, in the old covenant, it's the law that governs us. That governs us. In the new covenant, we've been given self-control to govern us. So we're not governed by the rules. We're governed by the indwelling presence of God leading us through self-control. Are you guys starting to see the difference here? Uh, in the old covenant, this is really good. Let's talk about sin. In the old covenant, sin changes our relationship and our status with God. You're either right with God or you're wrong with God. And here's all the penance you need to do, according to Leviticus, if you're wrong with God. If you touch, you know, a certain, like, if you go into some of the rules in Leviticus, this is a freebie, but it's fascinating to me. Some of the rules about even the preparation of food 
It was the wisdom of God to keep the people from bacteria. Did you know that? They would tell you, you can't, cre- you can't like, um, prepare certain animals in the same place as produce. Why? Because back then there was no antibiotics. So you didn't want to mix the blood of an animal with your produce. I mean, when you read that, you're like, gosh, Lord, you are fascinating how you led your people. And so in the Old Testament, when we have a sin in the camp, we've got sin in our heart, sin in our home, all of a sudden our status with God, our standing with God changes. In the New Covenant, sin does not affect your relationship with God. It affects your relationship with the enemy. Let me say it again. In the New Covenant, sin does not change your relationship with God. Why? Well, because in case you didn't know, the Greek word for all is all. And so Jesus paid for all of your sins. They're all done, past, present, and the ones you're not sure you're going to commit in the future. They're all covered under the blood. And so now your standing is secure. It's like this. It's the difference between saying, I failed and I am a failure. Your identity stays intact regardless of what you do right? So your sin, now you're not motivated to not sin because you want to stay right with God. Now you're motivated to not sin because you want to do like Ephesians tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, to acknowledge the fact that I'm a child of God, no matter what I do. And that has implications in my life. Amen. When I begin to realize that I begin to say, Oh, hold on. I don't have to live like this. Hold on. I'm empowered to live in a better way. It's not because I'm motivated, because I'm afraid, all of those things, right? So let me say it again. In the old covenant, sin changes your standing with God. God dealt with that. That was not his plan. He didn't like that. Let's just be really clear. It was not God's desire to deal with your sin in a way that you were right with him or not right with him. That was the byproduct of the fall. And I I said this to you guys last week, and I, I heard this, a preacher say this. I thought this was so interesting. He said, maybe God created the system of sacrifices so that when you would mess up and you had to come and create a sin offering, he could remember he was sending Jesus to pay for that and extend mercy to you in that moment. He could remember, I do love you. Yes, you screwed up. Yes, we have an issue between us now, but I'm, I'm accepting your offering. I'm accepting your sacrifice, not because it will always be this way, but because it's like this now until my son comes and pays for it once and for all. You better believe the party in heaven when Jesus breathes his last was epic because now all the sin past, present, and future sin is all covered. Now God doesn't have to deal with you on your identity. Now you are set by who you are. So sin now is about how I want to live my life. That's a lot harder, honestly. It's a lot harder to think about, wow, if I'm going to sin, then it's because I chose not to embrace the free gift God had given me to be empowered to grow up a little bit. Just let that sit for a second. Here's a way you can tell which covenant you think the most about, okay? When sin is present, do you panic? Do you panic when sin is present? And if you do, there's probably something inside of you that feels afraid of how God is going to treat you. I think in the new covenant, when sin is present, there is also peace. Does that mean we're just excused to do whatever we want? Of course not. Romans makes that abundantly clear, right? Pursuing holiness will always be a good idea. But we have to pursue holiness because we're motivated because we love him, not because we want to get right with him so that he'll do more things for us. That's an old covenant perspective. I'm going to tit for tat. I'm going to do all these things, and then I'm like taking you up on it, Lord. You better give it back to me. 
In the new covenant, we go, everything I have is yours, Lord. Every action, every thought, it's all yours. What should I do about it? Amen? Amen? All right, one more for you. In the old covenant, this is what repentance looks like. In the old covenant, repentance says, go ahead, punish me. I blew it. I deserve it. I'm a worthless, no good scumbag. (laughs) Think about it. In the old covenant, when we think that our standing is changed by our sin, we approach repentance by saying, I know, I know already, I screwed up. You don't have to, you know, you can punish me because I deserve it. That's what we think. How many times do we do that? I'm including myself in this, right? In the new covenant, this is what repentance looks like. Are you ready for this? I want to restore what I screwed up. I'm taking ownership over my actions. Why? Because I know I'm empowered to do something different. In the old covenant, we're just subject to the law, right? We have no other choice. In the new covenant, we go, hold on a second. I'm only subject to the self-control and the amount of surrender I want to give to Jesus in my heart. And if I want all of you, Lord, then I get to have all of you. You get to empower me to fix every single thing I blew up. I think when we recognize what the new covenant has done for us, it changes everything. I shared this last week and I'll say it again. We release the covenant we're the most aware of. You actually have permission by God to live under this covenant if that's what you want. But if this is how you choose to live, that's what you're going to live in. It's going to be harder to step farther into the Lord. It's going to be harder to embrace his grace. My hope for all of us is that we would be new covenant people. Why? Because the old is done. It's already done. Amen? My heart for us is that we would be the kind of people who would say, man, Lord, I am on an ever-present, a humble, a realistic journey. I'm not perfect. Your grace didn't say that I don't need to change. You know what I'm saying? The new covenant, it's, not, it's a hard thing to preach this without you know, bringing balance into the perspective. I love how Graham Cook says, if you're not preaching the grace of God in a way that it sounds too good to be true, you're not preaching the real grace of God. And as a human... I'm like, whoo, I don't want to say all of this because I don't know what you guys are going to think about it. But the reality is it's not up to my thinking. That would be what? Right? I want you guys to be so radically un, like, overwhelmed by what God has done for you, for all your screw-ups, for everything you can't get right, for all the habitual sin you're still doing. This still applies to you. Your standing with God is still set. You're not a victim to your sin. Okay, so now that we got that as a baseline, (laughs) I want to encourage you. If you're looking at this and you're like, wow, I I have been an Old Testament person, there's grace. Today is your day to begin to say, Lord, renew my mind. Wake me up before you go, go. (laughs) My mind always goes to song lyrics. But do you guys understand what I'm saying? If you're like, I need to understand the new covenant, I got two great preachers for you that I personally really enjoy. Um, One is Graham Cook. You cannot get enough of Graham Cook. Oh my gosh, this man, I'm a super fan. Um, If you can be that with someone who, anyways, you can, thank you, yes. Um, Anyways, Graham Cook is a great one. 
Yes, in this covenant, I can, yeah, thank you. Uh, and he is a phenomenal resource for what it looks like to walk in the grace of God. In fact, I recently learned that on Apple Music, um, he has like lots of teachings that are free on there. So I would encourage you, Graham Cook. The other one is a pastor that I've been quoting some recently. His name is Jim Baker with 1K from Zion Christian Fellowship. And uh, he's a younger guy. He's not the Jim Baker of PTL back in the day. Um, but he has this, un- this revelation about the new covenant in such a simplistic way that it makes you go, oh, that's what the Bible is saying, and I love it, and I would just encourage you to look him up on their podcast. Uh, I think it's called Zion Christian Fellowship. If you're going, I want to know that, shoot me a private message, shoot our Bethel page a private message, and I will direct link you to some of these teachings so that you can make sure you're listening to the right one. All right, so I want to talk about confrontation. I want to talk about how to deal with people, but I want to do it from this perspective, actually from this perspective. Amen? I want to talk about it and how we deal with people's issues in the context of who we are in Christ and through our new covenant because there is no point doing it from here. The old covenant, it's not going to work, okay? It's not going to work when we talk about people. So kingdom confrontation, I love Danny Silk's uh, definition of this. It's, It's not, essentially kingdom confrontation is saying, I want to help turn the light on for you. There's an area you're not aware of in your life, and I'm coming to turn the light on for you. Amen? I'm not coming to try to control you. I'm not coming to tell you everything you're doing wrong. I'm coming out of my identity, knowing who your identity is. When we look at it like this, everything begins to change. So if we're accustomed to saying, I'm looking for the me in you, and we're making this transition to say, I'm looking for the Jesus in you, then we get to open up the range of relationships we have because they're no longer limited by my personal preferences. But I'll just tell you, somebody who's been in ministry a little while, the second you open that up, now you need to know what to do with people who ain't nothing like you. Okay, now you need to do, know how to handle people who you're going, oh, I would never do that. The key, the first key is recognizing their identity as a son or daughter of God. Because if you can't start there, just, just renew your mind before you even enter those relationships. Because we don't want to treat people according to their flesh. Let me just give you a spoiler. Because in the Bible, it says the measure that you judge, you will be judged. And also that you reap what you sow. And Galatians makes this fantastic verse where he says, make no mistake, God will not be mocked. You're going to reap what you sow. So my advice to you would be start sowing good things before you do confrontation so that you can reap the good things. Amen? All right. Okay. So um, when we're talking about confrontation, we're not talking about punishment. I'm not talking about punishing people. This is really interesting. And I had to do some major heart check with myself as well, just for full transparency. When I think about kingdom confrontation, typically we have three responses. The first one is this. I come because I want to make you feel small. I want to exert my expertise in this area and remind you of what you didn't do correct. So a lot of us, when we think I'm going to come and have a conversation with somebody, the, whether we know it or not, our intention is, I want to make you feel small so I can feel justified in how I do life. All of that comes out of the, I'm looking for me and you perspective. The other thing that we do when we come into confrontation is we're like, I'm going to make you pay. Don't raise your hand if that's you. But some of us do that. We, and we do that because we're thinking, I need to make sure that you can empathize with my pain So I'm going to cause you pain in the same area so that we're both feeling simultaneously and then to the glory of God. No, it doesn't work like that. (laughs) But we do that sometimes. We fall into these patterns where we show up in a confrontation and the next thing we know, we're like, oh, it is on. Uh 
you will feel this way before we're done because I have to release this. And what we don't realize is when we release this, we've just sowed into the flesh and we've actually made a bigger mess, but that's a story for another time. The third thing that we do when it comes to confrontation is we actually distance ourselves. We withhold love. This is a really, really hard one to break, especially in the family dynamic. You make me mad, I wouldn't do it like that. And now I'm justified in withholding myself because you don't deserve this. Is that too real? But if we're going to operate in the new covenant, if we're gonna walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received, then we have to be intentional with ourselves. We gotta take that fine tooth comb over our heart and go, all right, Lord, am I treating people according to how you treat them? And if I'm not, we don't beat ourselves up, we don't condemn ourselves, we don't lump this, you know, ugh, punish me. We just go, all right, I'm empowered to do this differently. Holy Spirit, you have given me self-control. I could use some more of that right now. When we're talking about a culture of honor, I love this quote, this is what it says. There will be no culture of honor without the active use of effective communication. You can't have what we talked about last week. You can't have a culture of honor unless we get good at actively confronting people. But again, we gotta do it from the right perspective. I love how Danny Silk puts it this way. He's got some great resources on this. Um, there's a book called Culture of Honor and also one called Keep Your Love On that talks a ton about this. There's great resources if this is touching on you and you wanna go deeper in that. But he talks about it like this, that gentleness is essential to honor. So what is gentleness? Gentleness is not being a pushover. It's not being a doormat. That has nothing to do with it. It's not a personality trait. Gentleness is a byproduct of the presence of God in you. It's called a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's not just a song we sing in kids' church. It's actually when the Holy Spirit is present in you, then gentleness is also present. And so that means even if you're a raging dragon person in the middle of an argument, you can access the gentleness of the Holy Spirit. You might have to pause I have to say, excuse me, it's bathroom break time. Oh, Holy Spirit, gentleness, please. I'm evoking the gentleness to come out. You know, whatever, I'm just kidding. And then, uh, go ahead, what, what were you saying? Gentleness is in you, but if we're going to get good at honor, we have to learn to access it. Gentleness is not just being polite. It's the heart posture, I don't need to control you. Gentleness is saying, I don't need to control you, and I don't want to control you. I want you to be who you are in God, and I want that for me as well. He goes on to say, mastering gentleness stems from our belief system. So here's a couple more questions for you, okay? Mastering gentleness stems from our belief system, and this is how you can tell what's in your belief system. Do you believe that you can control people? What does that mean? Oh, I can make them do that. Let me call. You didn't have any luck? Hand me the phone. That's not always bad in certain, in certain situations. Like Brandon is a master negotiator if you've ever watched him negotiate, right? It's not always wrong. But sometimes we take that out of the context where it's useful and we go, listen, I feel like confident enough that I can smush you to the ground until you cry uncle. I mean, I can get you to do what I want. So you gotta ask yourself, do you believe you can control people? Here's one of the ways that you can tell. What do you do when someone won't let you control them? When someone will not allow you to control them, what comes out of you? This is one of the ways that we can tell. Are you angry? Oh, 
Are you, do you feel dishonored? Oh, I have never in my life. Or do you just go, that's it, we're done. Just withdraw, withdraw your love. These are hard, I know, guys. Like when the Lord was laying this out for me, I was like on my face, oh, I have so much room to grow. So I'm saying this to you as a friend, as someone who's in the middle of this as well. But I've also seen the benefit of what it's like when we deal with this stuff in, our, in ourselves. I've seen the benefit in our home, in your marriage, with your children, with your friends, when we come into this new covenant perspective of people. So this is why I feel like it's important for us to look at it. Let's talk about self-control for a moment. This Holy Spirit has given us self-control. The only legal control in the kingdom of God is self-control. God does not control you. God does not want to control you. And he sure as heck doesn't want you to control anybody else. The reason why self-control is a fruit of the Spirit is because this is how we are governed in the new covenant. But it is the only legal type of control. I can get myself into line, but I don't have permission to make you do anything else. So when we recognize that, then self-control helps us move away from strictly reactionary relationships. What does that mean? Where I'm just responding to what you do and I'm kind of letting my flesh run, run wild. Self-control lets us pause, think about how would God handle this situation. Here's a great clue for you. If you're in like a volatile argument, there's something underlying that fear or that anger. There's like a lie, there's a thought, there's a hurt. That's what's driving the intensity. And so if we put on God's eyes, then we can go to that and begin to have a heart connection instead of just spatting back and forth. Amen? And I think for most of us, if you're like tempered people, if you have a, a big temper, if that's the kind of person you are, I think most of us, when, when you're raging in that moment, you're really crying out from a place of hurt, right? So if we just kind of cut through all the noise and we say, okay, hold on, I'm going to use my self-control to go deeper into what's happening here. What is reverberating in you that's causing you to lash out like this so we can have a different perspective? Amen? All right. Let's talk about repentance in the new covenant again. So in the new covenant, repentance, and especially in kingdom confrontation, repentance only works when our priority is on a heart-to-heart -heart connection. If I don't really want to restore my heart with you, then there's really no point in repenting. Sometimes we approach confrontation because we just want to say, you screwed me over, you apologize, I can feel better about myself. A lot of times that's what we do. But in the kingdom, when we're going into a confrontation, it's because I want to repair what I'm frustrated with you about. I want to come into right standing again with you. Amen? But that only works, repentance only works in that place if it's, if it's driven by this need to have a heart-to-heart -heart connection. I know this is hot. I should have provided you with fans. I'm sorry. But kingdom confrontation which we're, t we're coining that term for today for the sake of looking at it as interacting with people from heaven's perspective. I'm going to review some of this stuff. The goal is to bring something to light. The goal is not to make you feel small. The goal is not to prove that I'm right and you are the opposite of right. <laughs> it's bringing something to light. I love this quote. Coming in the spirit of gentleness means I'm coming to turn the light on for you, not to tell you that you're wrong. It's because I see something. Let me, let me tell you this way. A friend of mine was in a counseling session last year and she was explaining to me what her counselor said and I was like taking notes. Do you ever have those moments like, ooh, that was good. And this counselor was drawing this quadrant, a four-part quadrant. 
just imagine it. And um, in the quadrant, she was saying, we are only aware of, of parts of ourselves in relation to community. So this point was, there are things about you that only God knows. You can't see it about yourself. Other people can't see it. Only God can see it. These are both good and bad, right? Callings, uh, abilities, stuff like that, and also issues, lies that you're believing, stuff only God sees. Then you've got this category where God sees it and, and you see it, but other people don't really see it. Like, I'm aware, I'm growing in this area, I'm having a problem here, but other people aren't really aware of it, per se. And then for, the, the, for what I wanted to talk about for this morning, was the other category is the category where God sees it and other people see it, but you don't see it. And this counselor was making the point that God intentionally blinds you to certain things of your life so that you will need community around you. Ooh, right? And I started thinking about it, and I thought, that is so very true. There are things that people come to you and say, hey, have you noticed you do this? And I'm like, you know, or we are like, no, I don't do that. No, that's not true. And then they're going, I really feel like the Lord told me to bring this up. Well, you missed it. <laughs> but if we humble ourselves and we recognize other people are going to see things about us that we don't see, but actually they are true, God sees them, God put it in their heart to see them, then we can come forward into a better version of ourselves. But that only works if we're good at kingdom confrontation. Because otherwise we're just sloughing pain on everybody left and right. You suck at this, you know. Sorry, that might be too crass. But you guys understand what I'm saying? So we're coming in the spirit of gentleness, not to tell you that you're wrong, but to turn the light on for you. Uh, our baseline understanding with all confrontation has to be this. I cannot control you. I don't want to control you. So what do you do when you want to control someone in that moment? You remind yourself, I cannot control you. I don't want to control you. In marriage, this is so hard. Where We're like, if you would just change this one thing. Everybody's laughing because you all know, right? We, are, we would be the perfect couple if you would just change, if you would just quit eating chips, right? Um, just kidding. You can have all the chips, Grant. Um, but you know what I'm saying? We go, if I could just control this one thing, because in our limited perspective, that's the answer. But when we go at it from God's perspective, we relinquish that control. God actually pretty much always brings it about to something better than you could have perceived. Because control is not legal in the kingdom, so it doesn't produce eternal fruit. All right, consequences versus punishment. There are issues when you sin. Can we just be honest? I'm certainly not saying in the new covenant, free for all, it's all under the blood. Go get, you know, what you want. I mean, you can do that, but you will have consequences. But the consequences are different than punishment. And in our relationship with Jesus, this is where it becomes so important to understand that we are not incurring punishment from God because he dumped that on Jesus. He really did give it all away. Are there consequences? 100%. But the punishment is it's not punishment. So when we're having confrontation with people, I think we need to come in that same perspective. It does no good for me to try to punish you. Consequences? Yes. Here's another great example. Empowerment versus domination. I'm coming to this conversation with you because I want to empower you. There is a better way. I want to empower you. You don't have to live under this place. Again, not to come and dominate you. Um, one more time. So when we're talking about these types of situations, our identity stays intact. It's never about now you're not a son or daughter of God. That stays intact. Um, again, it's the I failed versus I am a failure. Um, this, okay, confrontation. This is the real test of relationships. Amen. 
You can tell how you're really doing with somebody if you can have this kind of a conversation. But my favorite kingdom confrontations are the ones you're not even sure are happening. That's like how effortless this can be. When we have our heart filled with the love of God, then we can come and begin to have a conversation and there's no sense of, I'm mad at you because I dealt with that personally before I came to the conversation. I forgave, I got my mind right. You guys understand what I'm saying? I've had a bunch of these situations in my life, as I'm sure we all have. And one of my favorites was my pastor at the time, this was, um, I don't know, about nine years ago, and I was on a team setting and apparently I was a hard person to work with on that team. And um, I'm joking, but honestly, when they started to bring it up, it was one of those moments where I thought, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not doing that. And my pastor would look at me and would say, Rachel, when you share your opinion, it's like you cannot allow anyone to differ from you. And I was thinking and I was thinking, but is that bad? Just to be honest. And so I would say, well, what am I doing that makes it like that? So we go on these walks in our discipleship time, and, and my pastor's wife at the time, she, I, one day, it had been about two months, they're consistently bringing this up in the most loving way. I never once felt unloved or unempowered to change. It was so gracious. It was a beautiful, heavenly experience. And I started to cry because I said, I just don't understand what you're saying. I feel like I'm trying everything I can try. Nothing is working. And she just put her arm around me, and she goes, you're going to figure it out. And I was like, but you're not telling me, <laughs> help, right? And about two weeks later, we were um, finishing a team meeting and um, everybody had left and I was just, before I left, and my pastor, the husband, he came over and he goes, hey, you got it. And I still had no clue what I had got. I still had no clue what I had stopped doing, just to be honest. And I said, what do you mean? And, and he began to explain one of the conversations we had in that time. And he said, the way that you said this disbanded all of that intensity and it was like, and it was beautiful, and I just wanted to say, you're growing in that area. What they were talking to me about was not just how I was on a team, but it was what they were seeing, which was I was trying to find my significance by my standing with everybody instead of from the Lord. And so they kept hitting this point because they kept saying, Rachel, if you don't figure out that you are significant because you're a human, you're going to be consistently pulling it from other people and causing all these problems. Amen. And I think about that so often, not just that, that word, but that moment of the way that it was so empowering and so loving, and I didn't even realize until years later they were essentially rebuking me. It was lost on me because the love was so there. And I've had that happen in my own life. I've been able to do that for other people, and that is the kingdom. Amen? Amen. Um, okay, so the end goal is always to strengthen your relationship and restore heart connection. If that's not your goal, just don't enter the conversation. Deal with your heart first. And the last thing I want to say about this is, is kingdom confrontation is actually better looked at as an examination. I want to see what's going on in there. What are you thinking? Where did we go off track? Where did we begin to believe different things about each other? And if we can look at it as an exam, then we can get comfortable with doing that. In the context of church, we sometimes have to have these conversations, like if you're in a small group, let's just get really specific and practical. If you're in a small group and there's a person who just constantly hijacks the conversation and turns it back to them all the time, then somebody's gotta be the one that volunteers as tribute to have that conversation, for you Hunger Game fans. But in that conversation, it can't be, listen man, you gotta stop talking. It's gotta be, hey, what's going on inside of you that makes you, like, that, that hurts when other people are getting the spotlight for a moment? You see what I'm saying? When we begin to look at it like this, man, our community changes, our relationships grow. We begin to be like heaven on earth. It's just a little bit. 
And that's my heart for us. So here's what we're going to do to end. Um, I want to take a moment, and I want us to ask the Holy Spirit, what's a lie I'm believing about confrontation? Or maybe it's about when I disagree with people. But we're just going to take a moment and just quiet our heart. So Holy Spirit, what is a lie? Would you reveal to us a lie that we're believing about confronting other people, about disagreeing with people? We're just going to stay quiet for just a minute and let the Lord speak that. And now, Holy Spirit, we're asking, would you reveal to us, what's the truth about that lie? What do you want me to know? What's your perspective? So this morning, Lord, we just do a divine exchange. We give you what we've been thinking and we take what you think. And we ask you, Lord, to replace our thoughts that come against what you're saying that are not in line with you and to give us the ones that are, Lord, because we want to be kingdom confronters. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling we've received. We want to be new covenant people. And so, Lord, we just give you permission to come and, and help us renew our minds in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so next week we're talking about family and boundaries. It's our last uh, message in the People series. And so if you need prayer for anything specific, I would encourage you to stay. Come up here. We've got some people who would love to.